God has blessed us in so many ways, so many ways that we cannot, as we sometimes sing, count our every blessing, for he has provided us with a place that we sometimes maybe take for granted, but we're grateful for this facility, but more importantly than that, we're grateful for the church, those members, those individuals that make up the Lord's body, both in a worldly sense around the globe, including brethren that we may never meet on this side of eternity. And certainly in this local congregation, we are blessed with men and women who we care about so very much. Glad you're here tonight as we study together. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 3, where we're going to spend most of our time together this evening. We'll make a brief reference to the 62nd Psalm which our brother read for us a few moments ago, but Acts chapter 3, and we're going to look at the first few verses together in our study together this evening. Acts chapter 1 is well known as the passage where those men were standing, gazing up after Jesus had ascended to heaven. And the angel comes and says, you men of Galilee, why do you gaze thus so? This same Jesus who you've seen gone up will come back in like manner. In chapter 2, which some have called this central part of the book of Acts or the even hub of the Bible, we find the day of Pentecost and this first gospel sermon that is preached by Peter and the other apostles who are gathered there in Jerusalem. And the response was surmountable, wherein individuals numbering 3,000 decided to become Christians. And it says the Lord, in the very final verse of the previous chapter, added to the church daily those who are being saved. And we sometimes make reference to the fact that when you are baptized, whether it's here in this baptistry or in a pool somewhere else in the United States or elsewhere around the world, you are baptized into the Lord's church. You are now a member of God's household, which is the pillar and the ground of the truth, as Paul would say to Timothy. But I want us to then transition to chapter 3 and talk about the first recorded and likely miracle that was performed past Pentecost, where Peter and John together encounter a man who was described as being lame, powerless, poor, and likely penniless, desperate for any kind of help that he could get from a passerby. And we are fortunate to read the story of this first recorded miracle post the day of Pentecost and draw some observations and lessons about it. This is a very simple kind of study, but yet I believe one that is important for us to engage in that when you read a text, you don't just say, okay, I've read those 10 or 12 verses or chapter or whatever the case may be, but what is in there for me to learn? What is it for me to appreciate? And we're going to talk about, indeed, the power of Jesus' name and, indeed, the fact that his name is above all names and that the power is found in him alone. Even though the word Jesus or the focus of Jesus is not necessarily in these first 10 verses, 
We're going to find where there's a reference made to the name of Jesus. But Jesus is not a central character in the book of Acts because he is passed on from this life to eternity and then ascended back to eternity to heaven. And so I want to read these 10 verses and then make seven very simple observations. We'll pause in between a couple of these verses to make a couple of subpoints. But it says that Peter and John went together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man who in the New King James Version is described as lame from his mother's womb was carried. Already we know this is a desperate picture and a picture of a despondent individual. We take for granted those of us that are ambulatory and mobile We take for granted the fact that we can go wherever we want, whenever we go, and it's not until we then lose that ability, maybe as we are uh, crippled in some sort of an accident or temporarily wounded in some sort of a break or a fall, or maybe we grow older, that we learn to really appreciate what it was like to be able to quickly get around. But it says, they lay daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, and he, they laid him there for this purpose in the tail end of verse 2, to ask alms, or your version may use the word beg, from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. My suspicion is, is this is the millionth time he's made this request. He's made this request quite often. Anything for me? These days, you'll find individuals who are unfortunate, who will stand at street corners or sit in chairs near an intersection, and they'll hold up a cardboard sign where they have written so that you can read as you write, as you, so as you drive by, and they say, anything will help. And certainly, this man was saying, I'd like for some help. Verse 4, the New King James Version says, Fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. I, I do wonder what the tone was in look at us. But I think there's some serious tone that is involved here. He gave them his attention. And it says, verse 5, expecting to receive something from them. Seemingly to me, aha. Someone who's not going to pass by and say, thanks, but no thanks. They're going to take out a couple of dollars and give them to me to help. Peter said, silver and gold, I don't have it. But what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with him, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they knew that it was the man who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is a great account 
This is the first, again, recorded miracle post-Pentecost. And the most of the miracles that we are familiar with about individuals who are either blind and then receive their sight or deaf and receive their hearing are those with whom Jesus has a personal interaction. Jesus certainly has an interaction with this man. But he does so through the vessel of Peter and John, who are the ones who provide this healing by way of God's holy power. I think there's a lot that we can learn in this passage that we've already kind of discussed as we've broken the text into three or four different sections. But I want us to look at seven lessons that we can appreciate. And the first of those is about you and about me. And that Christians need to be about the business of doing everything we can to help others on a continual basis. Now, we may not have the financial resources to help. And we certainly do not have spiritual gifts to be able to provide the healing power that only God can provide. But as we talked about in our Bible class this morning in Ephesians chapter 3... We can be there to listen, and we can be there to pray. And there are occasions where individuals will come to me and say, here's how I would interact with this person who's not a Christian to try to help her or help him get closer to God or or to find comfort in this world. I actually had a conversation recently with someone. I said, oftentimes it's not about what you know. It's about the kind of person you are. And the fact that you are there to listen to them, to support them, and to pray for them may be all that they ever wanted and ultimately all that they ever needed. But I'm struck by verse 1 where it says, They went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer. We need to routinely do spiritually religious important things, not out of routine. We talked about that recently in one of our studies. But there are lots of things that we need to be continually involved with. For example, if this is the only occasion in this 35-minute period that you come together in the course of the next seven days and study your Bible, it's not enough. I can't find a passage that tells me how often you need to study. But I do know that God's word is to be rightly divided. And that's not just a job for the Bible class teacher who's in charge of your fourth grader for 45 minutes on Sunday morning and 45 minutes on Wednesday evening. That's not just the job of our elders to study on a routine basis or our preachers or our deacons or those who are engaged in trying to teach their neighbor. It is every single one of us. Famously, Paul would say to the church at Thessalonica, I want you to pray without ceasing. If the only time that you pray over the next seven days is when we come together on an occasion like this, you are not doing your work continually as Peter and John were seemingly doing 2,000 years ago. We talked about our attendance and about the importance of being together. And I think I'm speaking largely to a group of people who could find a lot of super reasons to not be here tonight, at least at this particular moment, but you've chosen to be here. And it is super that you are here tonight. That might be a violation of of rules for me to actually use that term. It's actually um, now trademarked. You can only say that word on the radio if you have certain privileges. That being said, certainly 
more importantly than any of that or equally important is this example setting. I want to just very quickly read those two verses that we can quote or uh, we read quite often where he says, I beseech you, I beg you, I implore you, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. I might even argue that that word living is the idea of continual sacrifice. And he says, I want it to be holy, Paul says to the Holy Spirit, acceptable to God. And it's your reasonable service or rational, depending on the version you're reading from. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed instead by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. It seems to me that if I had been at Pentecost in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2 and I was Peter or John or any of the others who were highly responsible for teaching those perhaps as many as millions of individuals who had come for this religious feast— 3,000 people. I'm going to sit and relax and take it easy. But that's not what Peter and John did. That's not what Philip did at the tail end of Acts chapter 8, which we talked about just a couple of weeks ago at the conclusion of his successful day with the Ethiopian eunuch. We must continually be about the business of doing God's work. Secondly, each day gives us new opportunities for helping others. There is something to be said, and this goes to the class that Mitch has been leading us through for the last four or five weeks to the idea of God's providence. I really grown with the idea of providence over the last dozen years or so in the sense that when you look at Ruth, when you look at Esther, the two topics, the two characters that we're looking at on our Wednesday night study, A dozen years ago, I was hesitant to talk too much about the providence of God because of the uncertainty about it. And I'm not about to tell you that I'm now certain about God's providence in the sense that I can see it or tell you when it's happening. But I do believe it's real. And I'm not sure, growth, I'm not sure I would have made that statement a dozen years ago. But I'm at a place now where, no, I'm good with it. There is something about God providing for his people and making things happen. And so, a certain man who was lame, who they laid daily at the gate. Well, he just happened to be there at the right time. And Peter and John just happened to pass by at the right time. Well, I think that God is more powerful than that. And he can make things happen. I I can't tell you exactly when. And certainly providence is one of those things that's kind of like hindsight, 2020. When you look back and say, I think God was orchestrating something in my life 15 years ago that made this happen so that this transpired. We've got to be careful with that because there are people in the world who will say, well, God led me to do this when it's clearly sin. So just because you say it doesn't make it true. But God certainly works in our lives. And certainly service to others is central to this particular concept. And so Christianity is built on service to others. I want to look at three passages here very quickly in rapid succession. Going all the way back to the book of Matthew chapter 22 verse 39. In Matthew 22, the second commandment is simply this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we could talk about that meditate on that and dwell on that for a good 20 minutes and talk about what that means. 
But Jesus would say in these subsequent verses that in response to the greatest commandment, loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself is the entirety of the law combined in less than five seconds. Or in Romans chapter 15, just three chapters over from where we read just a few seconds ago, you'll find that the apostle here writes, we then who are strong ought to bear with the weaknesses or the scruples of those who are weak so as not to please ourselves, but he's arguing here over the next couple of verses and really in the preceding dozen verses about considering one another. There are opportunities for helping others and they always are a Bounding. Or in James chapter 1, one of the passages that we look at when we're talking about those who are in need of assistance. And he says, if you think you're religious, let's gauge it based on a biblical, spiritually in depth definition. And you do not bridle your tongue and you deceive your own heart, your religion is useless, it's worthless. It's just in name only. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. One could argue with James and make the claim and say, it'd be a lot easier just to talk about religion and to express my religiousness without actually having to do anything. And James would respond by saying, well, duh. It would be easier, but keeping yourself unspotted from the world, investing in your time and your treasure and your talent in in others who are needful, indeed, there will never be a shortage of those who need this most important type of help, the assistance that we can provide. We cannot heal them in the way that Peter and John were able to do 2,000 years ago post-Pentecost. But we can pray, we can assist We can study, we can do all the things that are outlined in God's word. In John chapter 4 and verse 35, there are still four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields for they are already white for harvest. Jesus is making this simple statement in John 4, 35, there are ample opportunities to serve. And we often pray, and rightly so, publicly, uh, and I think even privately, God, give us opportunities, show us opportunities, and then provide us with the wisdom in those opportunities to be able to do what you want us to do. I think it is safe to say that among 160, 170 people, that at some point in the next seven days, there will be at least one. I'm being very conservative in my estimate. At least one opportunity that will be laid out for you on a silver platter, and it will say, here it is. Come take it. Someone's going to make a comment at work this week. Someone's going to say something to you spiritually. Someone's going to make a remark at school, and you will have the opportunity to defend the truth, to speak the truth. There are always opportunities for helping others in the way that matters the most. Number three, We must never allow those opportunities to pass us up, which is a a side point of this second point. But I think it's an important concept to make sure that we get. And I I really focused in on verse 4. And I like the way that the the text records this for us there in Acts chapter 3 in 
verse 4, where it says, fixing his eyes on him. Fixing his eyes on him with John Peter said, look at us. By the way, you can speculate and go down your rabbit hole if you want. Why, why Peter and not John? I, I don't really know. I, I have some suspicions as to why. But certainly John was in tandem with Peter, working together on this particular venture. And so I want to look at two passages that on the surface may be somewhat unrelated or even obscure. And one of those is all the way back in the book of Proverbs chapter 3. And the other is back to Romans chapter 12, a passage that you're a little more familiar with, at least at the outset. But in Proverbs 3 and verse 27, do not withhold good from those to him it is due when it is in your power of your hand to do so. There is a lot just in that one statement. There are times that being able to do good may not be in your power, may not be in your ability, but you can do something and everyone can care. Everyone can in the culture of ancient peoples sit in the mud as we've talked about before. You may not be able to fix the problem of your coworker or your friend or your family member or your brother or sister in Christ, but you can sit in the hole in which they are and say, I'm here with you and I'll just sit with you for a while. It reminds me every time when I studied the book of Job about his friends who uh, got more judgmental or questioning of him as the book progresses. But at the outset, what did they do? They just sat with him. And there's something to be said for sitting with someone and not knowing what to say, but just saying, I'm here for you for what that is worth. We must never allow those opportunities to pass us up, which it seems to me as Paul going on in Romans chapter 12 tells us that we are to let love be without hypocrisy. He says in verse 10, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. And then in the ESV, it says outdoing one another. Or the New King James Version says, in honor, giving preference to one another. And then it says, continuing steadfastly in prayer at the tail end of verse 12. And you can read everything in between. The point being is that Christians at the earliest time in history were always about seeking opportunities and never allowing those opportunities to pass them up. And the opportunities we pass up may be greater than what we thought. Hebrews chapter 13 has been thought for, or fodder for a lot of thought when the idea of uh, unwittingly entertaining angels, I, I think it's a simpler passage than maybe what we make it out to be going back to the, the event of uh, the angels and Abraham and Sarah. I don't know exactly where all that lands today. I'm not that smart to figure that out about angels today. But I do believe that there are opportunities to do good that we should avail ourselves of. Number four, we are predisposed. When I say we, I'm talking about me and you because we are humans to take the easy way out. And let's face it, the easiest thing to do sometimes is to throw some money at the problem and say, I've done my business. Now, money is important. But that's certainly what was happening here in verse 5 of the text where it says, expecting to receive something from them. That would have been relatively easy. Now, Peter and John probably didn't have a lot. 
at this point or at any point in, in their lives, so to speak. But sometimes when someone comes and asks for assistance, the easiest thing to do is to say, well, let me just spend five minutes with you and check the box. Or let me just give you $20 and check the box and move on. And, well, I, don't, I, I need more than five minutes. And I, I don't really need the money. I need you to actually come over and invest some time in your, your talent with me. Consider, if you would, Luke 18. And this is a story that you are familiar with. I just want to read it real quickly here just to refresh ourselves here. But in Luke 18, in verse 18, a certain ruler asked Jesus and comes to him in verse 18. And he says, good teacher, what shall I do to have or inherit eternal life? So Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. You know the commandments. And he begins listing them. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he says, all these things I have kept from my youth. Now, verse 22, I've always found it intriguing that Jesus doesn't say, no, you didn't. Jesus moves on to a different point telling me that this person was probably a relatively religious and dutiful person. He says, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have, verse 22. Distribute to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Isn't it true that many of us have certain commandments about things that we need to do or things that we need not do that are relatively easy for us to follow? And especially when the preacher is talking about that particular sin or that particular issue or that particular weakness, we kind of look at ourselves and say, I don't struggle with that at all. I must be doing pretty well. Um, I'm I'm not trying to be uh, disrespectful of anyone who's ever uh, been uh, uh, addicted to drugs because that's a real issue. But I have never, ever, ever wanted to put a needle in my body or to snort something up my nose. It's never crossed my mind. That doesn't make me a good person. Don't don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say I'm great because of that. And there may be individuals here who have struggled with that before. And more power to you for the fact that you are on this side of it than before. I can I can barely if I go give blood, I have to lay down completely flat because I pass out every time. Can you imagine me with needles? The fact of the matter is, is if, 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 if the preacher says, we're going to talk about drug usage today. I don't struggle with that. I'm good. But then you start talking about pride, maybe. Or maybe gossip. Or maybe white lies. Or maybe sexual immorality. Now you start hitting close to home for some of us where things that we have struggled with or are struggling with... Now he's talking about things that are a little bit more challenging. We want the easy way out. And I I am so pleased with uh, Brother David and the work that he did this morning in saying, we serve a God who is a judge God, a God who is a judge. Jesus is the judge. We will face the judgment. Hell is real and it is eternal. And that he, and I think all of us are not... Uh, to where we would take the easy way out and say, we're not going to talk about those things because they are politically incorrect or uncomfortable for us. 
It seems to me that when you go back to the Gospel of John in chapter 6, if you want to read those seven verses, that some of the early followers of Jesus did exactly that. When they heard and saw and witnessed how difficult faithful life to God was, they said, "Mm, we're out. See you. We're done. And they just left. And can you imagine... Think about it from this vantage point. Can you imagine how disappointed you are when you're trying to study with someone and you're just not making any inroads and then the studies come to an end or they don't accept your invitation to study or whatever the case may be? You feel disappointed. Can you imagine Jesus having people who were there following him, at least seemingly expressing interest in his words, and they say, we're done. We're walking away. And I appreciate that this is a congregation that takes notice of those of our members and our friends and our family who have walked away and that we still care about them and don't just say, oh, the easy way out, they're gone. No, we want them back. We want to do what is hard and do what is right. Number five, God's power is all sufficient. What is it that Peter And John, do not have what a lot of us don't have too much of. Now, we are very blessed in the United States and in the 21st century. But silver and gold, I do not have. Uh, Sometimes we make that statement. That may not be totally true. Uh, We may be making this statement trying to find an easy way to say, I'm not going to help you out financially because that's not what's best for you right now. You need something else. But they literally don't have money, it seems to me. They're that impoverished and that desperate to have assistance from others, even themselves. Silver and gold, we don't have. I don't have that, Peter says. But then again, Matthew chapter 16, verse 26 reminds me and reminds you that God's power is greater than earthly riches. And you may be present tonight and you may be struggling financially. You may never have a lot in this life. If you have Christ Jesus, you have everything you need when it ultimately comes down to the end. I know that's easy for me to say. I know it's easier for people who have a a place to live and and who have a vehicle to drive. For most of us here that are doing uh, well enough to have those privileges and to have those opportunities, to say to someone who doesn't, well, it doesn't matter that you don't have that, just have Jesus But the truth of the matter is, is there are a lot of people in the world who are much wealthier than you and me, and they don't have what you and I have. They don't have God's power in our lives, which goes back to Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21 that we talked about in our Bible class this morning. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or even think. Go back and read sometime, 1 Samuel chapter 17. That's the account of David and Goliath. I love Psalm 62 where our brother Mitch read for us a few moments ago where it says, power belongs to God. I know that the psalmist says. God has all the power. I don't have any of it. And so God's power is good for us. And I know that because of what happened here in Acts chapter 3 with this particular account, and I know it from passages like 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 
where very late in that second recorded letter, he says, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will rather boast in my infirmities that what? The power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul says, life isn't as beautiful as what I would like it to be. And let's admit it, all of us have something in our lives where we wish we could change it physically, mentally, financially, socially to make us, quote, better and more whole. But sometimes we've got to remember what matters the most is not what makes us whole in the world's view, but what makes us holy in God's view. God's power is good for us. Speaking of God's power, that brings us to our sixth observation, and that is God's power is immediate. There are some occasions in Scripture where you see God's power growing. Uh, You think about the man who saw a little bit more clearly, but he says, I see men like trees, and then his vision is restored in a more perfect fashion. But I love verse 7 where it says, immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. I don't know why the Holy Spirit chose to mention that. I have a suspicion that I'll get to here in just a moment, and that is this. The writer of verse 7, who is he? Well, it's the Holy Spirit, of course. But whose pen is being used? And that's Luke. And if you are a physician, you've got to be absolutely flabbergasted over this. I cannot believe what just happened. Here is a man who very clearly from verses 1 and 2 has been lame and unable to walk, unable to get from one place to another. He's dependent entirely on someone else or someone else's to get him from point A to point B. This isn't the only person in in the New Testament that is like this that we see described. And in that era, you did not have the American Disabilities Act from 40 years ago or 30 years ago. You do not have a social security network. You do not have Medicare and Medicaid for those who need that kind of assistance. This man is dependent entirely on the assistance of others. He is desperate. He is despondent. And then all of a sudden, He says, on an average day, do you have anything to give me? And 10 people go by and they say no. And then this man by the name of Peter and John fix their eyes on him and say, no, no money. But I do have something for you. I wonder what he thought when that statement was made. And I wonder what it would have felt like emotionally as well as physically to have your bones restored where your feet and your ankle bones were restored in strength. This has got to be a doctor's dream. But the fact of the matter is, is this is the immediate power of God that works for us and in us as well. You know, in Mark 16, 16, which is a passage that David had on the screen today, which is one that you and I are familiar with, he that believes and is baptized will be saved. He that does not believe or he that disbelieves shall be condemned or be damned to use the King James Version. That is an immediate thing. You do not come out of the waters of baptism on a trial period as a Christian. 
You don't come up and we say, well, we'll give it three months. We'll see how you're doing. We'll gauge you. We'll, we'll come back. There are religious organizations and religious denominations that will say, well, we've got to work you through a process to get you to a place where you are ready for stage two or stage three of your religiousness. Not so. Is it true that we are to grow as sincere babes? Absolutely. Is it true that we are to grow in the grace? Second Peter chapter three and verse 18. Rightly so. And is it true that even those of you who are present here tonight, who have been Christians longer than some of us have been alive, you're still growing as well? Absolutely. But God's power is immediate in that when you come out of the waters of baptism, having repented of your sins, confessed that Jesus is the Christ, you are a child of God with every privilege that comes to someone who's been a faithful child for 30 years or 50 years or more. That's powerful. And that brings us to not just the power is immediate, but finally God's power is influential. Verse 10 is not necessary in the text, at least to complete the story. You could read Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, where verse 9 ends with the the people saw him walking and praising God. And then verse 10 talks about the people being filled with wonder and amazement. That's not necessarily vital to the text. Going back just a little bit, I love the three verbs. I, I wasn't a very smart student when it came to grammar, but I do like looking at verbs where it says in verse eight, it says he was walking, he was leaping, and he was praising God. Can you imagine what it must have looked like to see this grown man walking who had not walked before? And he says, hey, if I can walk, I can leap. You sometimes watch our young people come into services, like those maybe under four or five. They will come into services leaping. Got to watch out for them sometimes. Dodge them. But they're leaping because they're excited to go to Bible class. They're excited to come to worship services. They're excited to see their friends. They're excited to sing songs. I thought that was interesting that it talks about leaping and then thirdly praising God. But the fact of the matter is, as... We talked about this morning, as we talk about on a routine basis, the gospel is influential and it is powerful for saving souls. It is the power unto salvation. I have come to really appreciate Romans 1.16 more over the last five to 10 years than ever before in light of the fact that there are times where I may wonder, is what I'm saying going to be the best thing to get this person to, to, to believe and to obey. And certainly what I say or what you say, how I say it and how you say it matters. But when you boil it all down, it's not about you, the messenger, or me, the preacher. It's about this. This is the power to salvation. And if a person believes it, that's wonderful. If not, That's not good, but that's not my fault. Now, we always want to improve on our delivery. Don't get me wrong. But you could easily get discouraged in teaching when you're not having the success, and I put that in air quotes, that you would otherwise want because someone is not listening. 
And I want to go to one final passage here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I want to read just a couple of verses. I would encourage you to read the first chapter sometime in the next week or so, where it says, the message of the cross, this is verse 18, or the word or the emphasis of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, something to be said about that phrase as well, it is the power of God. And if you drop down to verse 24, to those who are called, that's you, that's me, Christians, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because, verse 25 is concluding thought, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's the powerful God that we serve. And that influential power of God can, as illustrated in Matthew 5 and other passages, and should be seen by others. We may not be able, strike that, we are not able to do miracles. But God's power can still be seen in the way that we live and in the faith that we have and the trust that we instill in him. Let me conclude with this. And I hope that you've listened to everything because the last 60 seconds you could take the wrong way. Because I'm not here to insult you tonight. I made reference to this in the Bible class period this morning. But let me suggest to you that we are all lame. What did you talk about Sunday? Preacher said I was lame. <laughs> Where do you go to church? <laughs> I don't know. The preacher told me I was lame. You are lame. I am lame. Now, we use that term in a different way today than certainly is accommodated in this particular passage. But we can't walk. We have no strength. We are desperate and despondent and distressed. And we all need God to heal us. And even if you say, well, I don't need healing. I'm however old I am and I'm good health and blood work is great and I feel good. More power to you. Just wait. God's power is the only thing that can actually make you better in a spiritually meaningful way by becoming one of his children today. I love Acts chapter 3. Uh, just because it's so simple. And this man went about leaving. You may come out of the waters of baptism and we will not judge you if you leap down down the aisle when you're done. All seriousness though, you will be more excited than ever before once you make that choice to obey God in baptism and to allow him to heal you. And the doctor, the great physician, will be the one that will provide for that healing. And that's certainly what we're going to sing about here in just a few seconds or so. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you need to make a a change and a drastic and immediate change. Certainly, it's okay to be thinking about that, but don't think about it for the next couple of years. Think about it soon, because we do not know when this life will come to an end. And we want to make sure that you are ready And we want to make sure that each of us are ready for that day. If you can uh, see that and see that you need to make a change, we'll baptize you this very evening. But if as a child of God, you're not living correctly and you need that physician to provide for you and for your care, 
We're happy to assist you. Let us know while together we stand and while we sing.